It's a little bit like the order that people, um, uh, if you have an Android phone and you do your password by swiping, yeah. um, that actually limits the number of passwords that you can have. Um, so it's not a totally random order. It's, it's, it's somewhat it, it, it's somewhat random. It is, uh, um, and, and somewhat not. Okay, so we finally finished Macbeth. Were you surprised? <laughs> yeah. I'm yeah. surprised I finished I, it. But right. I'm, well, I'm sort of surprised because I remember reading it back in 10th uh, grade. Uh -huh. And for some reason, I remember there being more conflict between Macbeth and Macduff. Mm -hmm. But when I went back through it, it just seemed quicker than I remembered it being. Yeah, it's if it's staged. Did you watch it when you were in tenth grade? Um, I watched the <laughs> I watched the crappy one with uh, uh, I can't remember the name. It was like Shakespeare retold, and it was oh, right, what you were telling me about. And yeah. It was weird. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, it followed the story basically to a T. Yeah. Well, usually when it's performed, the fight between Macbeth and Macduff takes some time. And uh, that is when Macbeth says, um, lay on Macduff and um, curse be he um, who first cries hold enough. Uh, that's basically telling you that Shakespeare isn't going to say, uh, let that fight end really quickly, hold enough. Um, it's basically, that's a promise that's telling the actors that there should be a real fight there that it should be close, that Macduff is avoiding fighting with anyone else because it's only Macbeth that he wants to, he wants that to be the fight that he's in. So everything in the play is, uh, is, is preparing for the final confrontation between Macduff and Macbeth. If you think about it as, you know, Macduff disappears right after the death of Duncan. That is, he disappears from... Macbeth's castle, from Macbeth's circle, from forays. And, uh, and Macbeth, he doesn't come to the feast, and that gets underlined. If you just, again, look at the stagecraft by which Shakespeare makes the Macbeth-Macduff final face-off, the one that's really going to matter, part of that already begins with the fact that Macduff doesn't go to the Macbeth's feast. Uh, the two who don't go are Banquo and Macduff. Banquo, because Macbeth um, doesn't let him in um, using that, that most uh, <laughs> definitive of ways of ghosting someone, <laughs> which is you turn them into a ghost. Um, so it's a very transitive version of ghosting. And Macduff actually um, simply doesn't show up, and Macbeth brings it up with Lady Macbeth. Where's Macduff? Uh, Macbeth has Macduff's children killed. As Bloom points out, Macbeth is into killing children, um, not having a child himself. Um, maybe both of them are uh, the I have given suck speech that Lady Macbeth uh, um, uh, tells Macbeth, in, the, the, the urges upon Macbeth when she's trying to get him to keep his promise. And then when Macduff hears about the death of his wife and children, and you get that amazing he-has-no-children moment, and Macduff also tests Malcolm, the child of Duncan, to see whether he is the appropriate person to become king, more and more, the conflict in the play is a conflict between Macbeth and Macduff. And part of what Shakespeare is, is doing 
again, this is pure stagecraft, but part of what he's doing is he is kind of setting it up as a conflict between Banquo and Macbeth, and that's certainly how Banquo is thinking, I mean, excuse me, how Macbeth is thinking of it. Macbeth thinks Banquo is the real enemy. Banquo is the person that he has to take care of. It's him or Banquo, except that that's getting the prophecy a little bit wrong because it's not him or Banquo, it's him or Fleance. But Fleance, like Malcolm, like Donald Bain, they make themselves scarce. And when Malcolm reappears, part of what's surprising about Act 5, again, you may not be surprised either because you know the play or because you're just going along with the play, but part of what's surprising about Act 5 is that it's not a face-off between Malcolm and Macbeth. Macbeth belongs to, vaguely belongs to, or peripherally, or at some extreme, belongs to the genre of revenge tragedies where the way revenge, or revenge dramas, uh, someone give a quick definition of a revenge drama? It's an easy one, you can guess, yeah. I mean, like it's a like drama, like usually, especially in plays, where it's like all about like a character's like desire for revenge, often for something that happened before the play, but here it's within the play. Yeah, so before the play, you would have the death of Hamlet's father and Hamlet taking revenge for the death of his father by killing Claudius. In Romeo and Juliet, the revenge is, is Romeo's on Tybalt, immediate revenge, Romeo's revenge on Tybalt for killing Mercutio, but then everyone else trying to get revenge on Romeo for killing Tybalt. So it can happen within the play as well. But, yeah, frequently it occurs before the play. Richard II, for those who took Shakespeare in the first semester, is a revenge drama, kind of, sort of. It takes that form, which is that Bolingbroke says that the killing of his uncle Gloucester, his, his blood, like sacrificing Abel's, cries to me for rough chastisement. That is that I have to take revenge on the person who killed my uncle. So in Macbeth, Shakespeare's setting it up so that it will look like Malcolm or Malcolm and Donald Bain will both um, want to take revenge on Macbeth for the killing of their father. And Malcolm certainly is leading the English forces, but it's interesting and surprising that we never see him fight. That is that Malcolm is very much like, as you will see, like Octavius Caesar in Antony and Cleopatra, he is one of the military leaders, but not one who is involved in the fighting. And the person who does take revenge is not Malcolm for the death of his father, but Macduff for the death of his wife and children, for the death of all his pretty ones. And Macduff is absolutely determined that he is not going to fight against anyone but Macbeth. It doesn't work out that way, but that's his, um, his determination when he sees, that, that's what he says um, to young Seward. So the, um, perhaps somewhere behind that all is 
the fact that Malcolm and Donald Bain are not going to be the solution to the problems of Scotland, that getting rid of Macbeth, that's really important, but setting up Fleance and his line rather than the line that derives from, um, from Duncan and from Duncan's father, Malcolm, setting up that line is the line that really matters. One thing to know is that Donald Bain will eventually, this is not part of the play, but Shakespeare presumably knew this, Donald Bain eventually um, kills Malcolm's son. So um, it's not like, yay, everything is restored and now there's a good line of kings in England. There isn't. Um, and th- I mean, in Scotland, things only get good after, uh, after Fleance, who didn't really exist, so that's why he's such a good king, um, after Fleance mm-hmm. and his line going to the edge of doom, that is all the way to James VI of Scotland, who is James I of England, that's when things settle down in Scotland. Did you want to say something? I know, no. not yet. Okay. Um, one thing, just a, an interesting historical footnote about James. Do people know what the term regnal number means? You can guess. Is it like Erdoge number? No, but um, I'm glad you brought up the um, Erdoge numbers. In a very, 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 very vague way it is, but only in the vaguest of ways. Okay. Um, Nicole? I'm going to guess like maybe from the very first king ever before, since then, like the ordinal number that this king is? Yeah, so it's the ordinal number of a particular name. So if, so for example, Queen Elizabeth II uh, was, it comes comes 400 years after Queen Elizabeth I. It's like the popes do it too. Yeah, and the popes do it too. Yeah. Um, so John Paul II came right after John Paul I, but um, Francis, the um, whatever he is, or Benedict. He's Francis the first. Yeah. He's Francis the first. Yeah, but ben- or Benedict the sixteenth. No, I don't think he is Francis the first. I he's think the he's first. Francis. Yes. Yeah. No, that's not the same thing as Francis the first. This is the point. Okay. Well, he, he, he is he Francis. Is the, yeah, he's Francis because he is the only yes. Francis. Right. So if you watch Game of Thrones and it's Francis the first of his name, that's actually not something that is generally done. Usually, the first is not called the first, but is simply called by their name. So Queen Elizabeth was Queen Elizabeth until, and that was the proper way of talking about her, until 1954, I think it was 1954, when Elizabeth II was was crowned. And when Elizabeth II became ruler in England, that retroactively means, not really retroactively, but that means that we call Elizabeth I no longer simply Elizabeth, but Elizabeth I. Um, Same with Francis. You don't call him Francis I because then you are predicting the future. And what you are saying is the um, second coming won't come while he's pope because there will be another Francis that comes after him, making him Francis I of more than one. And um, there may never be another Francis. If it turns out that Francis uh, is a raving homicidal maniac, no other pope, you know, we find this out about him uh, sometime before another pope thinks about taking a name, no other pope is going to name himself or one can dream herself after, there once was a woman pope, by the way, um, but she was 
transgender and no one knew that she was biologically female. Um, so um, the, um, if he were to disgrace the position of Pope, no other Pope would name themselves after him, and he would always simply be Pope Francis. So there have been an, an, an immense number of Benedicts. Yeah. I think that there was at least one Benedict who was pretty horrible. But well, there are a lot of pretty horrible Popes. <laughs> yeah. But, but, but as long yeah. as you're not the first. Yes, that's true. So the point is James VI of England did, I mean of Scotland, did something unusual when he became King of England, which is that he had himself coronated. He called himself not King James of England, but King James I of England. And that was an unusual thing to do. I believe an unprecedented thing to do that what you are doing is he names, in naming himself, he is also doing something which you kind of don't want to do at the moment of naming, which is his name and his regnal number is an implication of his own death. That is, that as James I, the implication is there will be a James II after him. And that means that he will die. And yeah, as I, we all know we're mortal, but still the moment of naming should not be and generally isn't the moment of insisting upon mortality. But by calling himself James I, what he is doing is he is saying or he, th this isn't why he's doing it, I don't think, but what he's doing is he is acknowledging that there, that, that there will be kings after him, that he too won't be king at the time of the second coming, at the, at the time of um, the apocalypse. So in doing that, what he's actually, he's, it seems like he's doing two things. One is that he is saying, yes, I belong to a series of Jameses. I'm James VI of Scotland. I belong to a series of Jameses. And if you're James II, you're not doing the same thing. That is, Elizabeth II doesn't declare her own death by taking the name Elizabeth II. Um, her father, George VI, was it? Um, isn't, that wasn't his real name, his, his uh, given name was Albert, but he calls himself George, but he's one of a number and it's backwards looking. Was it George VI? Do you remember? Yeah. yeah. It's backwards looking. It's, yeah, there were five of them before me, um, so I'm the sixth. That doesn't imply that there'll be any after me. The only number that implies someone coming after you is first. After that, all the other ordinals can be backward looking. But so, so now you get quantitative reasoning credit for this class. Just um, you can dream. Um, so the backwards lookingness of the um, James the Sixth. He's king of Scotland. He looks backwards. Then calling himself James the First, though, that's forward looking. James the First of England. James the Sixth of Scotland. That's forward looking. But its forwardness is something like I'm the legitimate king of England, the, the um, series of kings that go through James VI 
will now lap, you could say, themselves, and now we will have another series of kings coming after me. So when Macbeth sees in Act 4, he sees the vision of all the kings that will not be his descendants, but that look like Banquo, and that will carry it out to the edge of doom. The idea is that we have all the past kings, all the kings that the audience knows were king of Scotland. So we are seeing a prophecy in the 11th century that in the 17th century, the 11th century prophecy is one that the 17th century audience knows has come true. And now the 17th century audience is also seeing James I, who is the pivot or the transfer to the series of kings that are going to come after him. James II and, well, that was it, really. Um, because of, do you know why James II was the last James? Does anyone know? He ruined the James name. Kind of, yeah. Yeah, a little. Not for everyone. Uh, there's still a chance. Um, you never know what's going to happen in politics. Um, sorry? Yes, because of the Glorious Revolution, as it's called, yeah. the Revolution of 1688. Nicole, you should know all about this, because it's what Absalom and Kittafel is about. Right. Um, <laughs> that is the face of somebody who does not know all about this. No, 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 no. It has something to do with like, Protestant and Catholic, and I think Pope, he was Catholic, right? Yeah, but Dryden was... was oh, Dryden was, the one who was, Dryden was also Catholic? Yes. And he was against the fact that they were preserving Protestantism in England by marrying, like, completely out of the royal family. Well, it was actually, um, he was defending... Um, uh, yeah, he's defending James. So James II, um, after we talked about this before, after um, the English Revolution, when the king versus the king, the trial of the king versus the king, very unfair. Um, uh, Charles I is um, dethroned and beheaded. Um, then uh, you get... Um, Twelve years later, Charles II, his son, is restored to uh, the throne of England. That's when Shakespeare plays start getting rewritten in the Restoration. Uh, Charles, the, the, uh, the heir to Charles II was his younger brother, James. James was Catholic. And the idea that, they were that there was going to be another, some more fussing in Britain or in, in the um, kingdom of um, England, Scotland, and Wales about whether it's going to be a Catholic or a Protestant country was ev and, uh, ended up being too much for um, those who had power. And in the Glorious Revolution, James was forced to abdicate. He also, there was, there was um, not very good military leadership on his part. Um, he was forced to abdicate. And um, then Mary became Queen of England and married William of Orange. And then you had the reign of William and Mary, which is Protestant. So essentially, England has been Protestant since Queen Elizabeth. But there was a moment when it looked like it might become Catholic. Yeah. I mean, it is, it is a little bit more complicated. Yes, it is. It, in theory, yes, you could, England has been Protestant, but... Like, there's, like, there was a king that, like, changed the Catholicism on his deathbed. There was, like, this one who did that. There's, like, we call it, like, there's a, between 
I don't even know when the ending point is, but Queen Elizabeth II is Protestant, so yeah. she's Anglican. So we, um, but there's like a, like a pendulum that just swings. Yeah, <laughs> like and British history. And and there are there's there's a movement called Anglo-Catholicism, mm -hmm. which is an attempt to heal the breach between the Church of England and the Church of Rome. And T.S. Eliot was an Anglo-Catholic. Was it, wasn't it a king that actually caused the Reformation? Henry the in England, yeah. 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 Well, no, he, uh, Martin Luther was the. Guy yeah. Well, yes, but, he had ninety-five reasons why fuck the church. Yeah, but, but Henry VIII, because <laughs> he wanted to divorce his first wife. Yeah. Decided that let's change the religion of the entire country just so I can divorce my wife. Yeah. And that is. I mean, that's that's. I mean, that's what I do. I don't. I don't know about yeah. you. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Got to divorce my wife. Well. No, he See he, he was able to to annul the marriage with his first wife. It was. It was Anne Boleyn. Well, he, he annulled it because he changed religion, and then in his so then new religion... So he could grant his own annulment yeah. rather than asking the Pope for an annulment, which he wouldn't Pope give said, him. No, 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 the Pope said no. Because the and Pope said no. He yeah. made himself the head of the religion so he yeah. could say yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you got to give it to the guy for his, uh, you know, his they drive. Married, they were married for, happily married 30 years, and then yeah. all of a sudden he was like, I want an annulment this time. Say what you will, the man is a showman. Well, because they were like... She was married to his brother, and that was, was the like, basis of it. It was like, it's been so long. So, she was married to his brother for about, like, three days, and his brother died, died before they could, like, consummate the marriage, so technically it didn't happen, and, like, in, according to those days, rules, it didn't. <laughs> There's also no. some evidence that Henry was suffering from traumatic brain injury. Oh, yeah, um, that's, that's, yeah, that's valid. Yeah. yeah. All this. Currently, uh, Anne Boleyn miscarried because she. The one of the reasons why she was eventually executed is because she miscarried a son because he fell off his horse and she went into such a state of stress that she miscarried and it was a son and that was what triggered him to start sort of the trials against her for her infidelity. Yeah. Ah. Yes. I was actually just going to point out that LV is equally responsible for remembering. <laughs> I'm still. It was party time back then, wasn't it? It really was party time. Yes, Elvie. So can <laughs> I guess it's a little. I, I, I guess I guess Henry VIII has has already ridden out of the barn before I close that barn door. Um, okay, so um, that's that's your potted English history for now. Um, okay, um, one of the things that uh, I wanted to just focus on or at least um, draw your attention to for a minute is what Coleridge has to say about Macbeth's character, which I think is fascinating and interesting and dovetails really nicely with what Bloom is saying about Macbeth in the essay by him that you read, uh, which is that Coleridge is really, really interested in the fact that Macbeth seems to have the kind of character that should be conscience-struck by everything that he's doing, but he keeps misunderstanding his own character. And that's a pretty fascinating thing to say, <coughs> that Macbeth feels pangs of conscience as cowardice. And uh, Hamlet very famously says that conscience doth make cowards of us all. But in Macbeth, it's not that conscience makes him a coward. 
It's that he reads his own conscience as cowardice. He, all the things that basically should be warning him. Um, this is a joke that Alan Grossman, who, was, who uh, had my office before I had it, he was one of the legendary figures at Brandeis. Yeah, he, he did um, Why is Death in Arcadia? Yes. Yeah, that was his, his lecture. Yeah, yeah nice. Oh, you're surprised I knew that, aren't you? I am <laughs> surprised you knew that. How did you know that? Uh, I knew that because um, I was... Uh, John Burton was going on one of his classic oh. tangents, and he was talking about how um, Alan Grossman was the kind of guy where instead of having a farewell party, he would have a farewell lecture. Yes. And um, and I heard about this, and so and I and I'm like, I really wanted to read this because apparently no one understood it, and they and everybody thought that another one of the professors understood what was going on, and then he finally said, No, I have no idea. So I asked him about that because I wanted to read it just like for for the you know for the shits. Why is death in Arcadia? And yeah, that's uh, that's that's his final lecture. It was great. You guys should read it. Yeah, or you <laughs> it's should easy, get his... it's, it's easy to find. <laughs> You should get his book Similyrica also. And you can also hear him um, on, he's a little bit hard to find on uh, the web, but he's, he was an amazing lecturer. He, um, he, he had this extraordinary charisma about him, and he was much imitated for many years uh, because of the, his charismatic style of lecturing. Um, he spoke with a bass baritone, and he was very... Joseph, in what he said. And if you'd ever heard him, you would know that that was a pretty good imitation. <laughs> and um, so, but he once told this joke, which I think works for Macbeth. He didn't tell it about Macbeth, but um, basically it's a, there, there's a flood, terrible floods. Um, everyone goes to the synagogue and says, Rabbi, Rabbi, you have to, you have to leave. Um, the flood is going to drown you. And the rabbi says, no, my trust is in God. I'm going to stay oh, here. How is this? And, oh, it's this. I, I, I love this. There's a bit in the West Wing about this. <laughs> So um, the water comes up to the top of the stairs, and a person comes by in a boat and says, Rabbi, Rabbi, get into the boat quickly. You're going to drown. The rabbi says, no, I trust in God. Um, the water goes up to the second floor. The rabbi's looking at this the, out of the cupola window. A person comes up by in another boat and says, Rabbi, Rabbi, get into the boat. This is, this is nuts. You've got to get into the boat. The rabbi says, no, 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 my trust is in Hashem. Um, the water keeps rising. He gets on the very roof. Uh, the motorboat comes by. The guy in the motorboat says, Rabbi, Rabbi, get into the boat. This is, you might think Philip Pullman is thinking about this in um, La Belle Sauvage. Anyhow, Rabbi, Rabbi, get into the boat. And um, the rabbi says, no, no, I absolutely trust in God. He's just testing me. The water goes over his head and drowns him. And um, he goes to heaven. And he's talking to God, as the old joke goes, they're having chicken sandwiches because with only the two of them, why, why cook? Um, <laughs> everyone else being in hell. And um, that's another joke, but I thought I'd cross them over. Um, and um, uh, the rabbi says, I, I just have one question for you. And God says, shit. And he says, I trusted you and I thought that, that you would reward my trust. And God looks at him and says, I sent three boats. <laughs> yeah. The version, the version I heard was, uh, uh, was a priest. And he, and he says, uh, and, he, and it's a boat 
and then well it's like a, it's like a car and then it's a boat and then it's a helicopter like as a case and then he drowns and then he gets to heaven and God says what are you doing here and and he's like well I I, I had my faith in you he's like I sent a truck a boat and a helicopter <laughs> like <laughs> yeah <laughs> so that is essentially uh, Coleridge's reading of Macbeth that he keeps getting pangs of conscience and he keeps mistaking those pangs of conscience as cowardice. And the way he responds to pangs of conscience, which should, the response should be something like, this is the wrong thing. Um, it goes against my conscience, the way it goes against Laertes to, uh, to fight against Hamlet. He almost doesn't want to do it. So with Macbeth, it goes against his conscience, but he doesn't recognize his feelings as conscience. What he th thinks of them uh, as being is, is, fan is, is fear of the supernatural, fear of ghosts, fear of mystery. Yeah? Um, could it be that like, Lady Macbeth kind of trains Macbeth to read his conscience as cowardice? Because he does initially say those things about how wrong it would be to kill Dunyan. Yeah. So... Or it could be that he's specifically asking her because he wants someone to convince him that his conscience is cowardice. Okay, nice. Yeah, it's, it's clear that the reason we have that speech, which is um, if, it were the, if it were done when it's done speech, it's clear that he regards the murder of Duncan as wrong. And the... Um, that, that uh, the violation of the laws of hospitality is just the wrong thing to do. But it's also clear that he turns that, even in that speech, you can see him turning it into fear. Fear of punishment. Fear of um, what will happen to him. You could even say fear of his own conscience. But in a sense, if you fear your own conscience, it's because you're misreading what it means to have a conscience. You're misreading what you're thinking of your conscience as something, well, really in a Freudian way, as something within you that is not you and that is only there to punish you. Uh, you're thinking of your conscience as Jiminy Cricket. And... That is actually what Freud says about conscience, that, that the superego, uh, which is for Freud more or less equivalent to conscience, is um, Freud, also, Freud actually calls it barbaric, that the superego is a barbaric part of the mind, making you feel bad about stuff you just shouldn't feel bad about, um, making you always feel guilty when you shouldn't be feeling guilty. <laughs> Macbeth may see his own conscience that way as something that's not him. And in theology, um, were any of you brought up Catholic? So do you guys know the, have you talked about the difference between repentance and remorse? It's sometimes also, so can you describe it? So as I remember it, remor repentance is the aspirational one so repentance is I think literally it means like to turn around or something and so it means like that 
you both are sorry for what you did and you vowed never to do it again. Mm -hmm. Versus remorse is just like, oh, I'm really sorry I did that, but I'm probably going to do it next week too. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and so like you, you can have remorse and not be repentant, but you can't have repentance without remorse. Okay, nice. Um, it's also, Cassie, do you want to add anything to that? Okay. Uh, well, yeah. And it also requires you have to do something to make up for what you did. So when you go and confess, um, you express your remorse and you list all the sins that you committed, and then the priest gives you, you know, five Hail Marys, whatever, and you have to go do them. Which is your then, penance. Yeah. Yeah. It's not repentance if you don't then do something to make up. Right, yeah, Jillian. What is a Hail Mary? Um, <laughs> I actually have never known that. Either. It's a pr- it's a prayer. But that's why it's called because it's a prayer, so that the Hail Mary like throw. A specific prayer. Yes. yes. Hail Mary. Full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. You can do that five what? times. What? Somebody. What the that was great. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes you have to do like a million of, not literally a what? million. What? Like, so sometimes they'll be like, say two Hail Marys and two Our Fathers, and sometimes they'll be like, say 20 Hail Marys and like go tell your teacher that you're sorry. <laughs> I think that like they like to not just give you prayers yeah. to say. Like if it's like a good priest, it will be just like do this rote memorization thing. It's like you have to do something constructive to make up for the fact that you did something wrong. So like apologizing to someone or like trying to do a good deed or something like that. I think that it like traditionally for a very long time was almost always just like go say a rosary, which is very boring. Um, But like it, it isn't really supposed to be. That's like not the point. The point isn't like participating in a rote act. It's participating in like an act of repentance is like a, like a visible sign of the fact that you're sorry. It's not just like empty words. I honestly just hoped that they would just like pick it randomly. Like, it, like you're just like, Father, I- I've murdered someone. Ah, of course. Three Hail Marys and go say sorry to your teacher. It's supposed to be like a reflection kind of thing and like a makeup for it. Of course it is, but... And, but you're also here. supposed to mean it. Yeah. That's true. You're not supposed to, you're not supposed to say it by rote. Yeah. So the audience is remorseful, but not repentant. Good. Repentant. Okay. Repentant. So the, the other, the, the just, so, just so you know... There, the parallel vocabulary, it's, it's making the same distinction, is between what's called attrition and contrition. So attrition is you feel bad. And it's, um, you know, just in everyday life, what attrition means is for something to be rubbed away, um, to, to um, uh, you, you can um, get, get a, um, a friction burn, on for something, and that's attrition. And what it means is that um, it's like an open sore, and that's that's equivalent of remorse. Contrition means what we mean by it, which is that you're contrite. Um, so re- repent literally means to rethink and to think again about what you've done. Remorse. Anyone know what it literally means? Anyone take French? 
Um, I thought you took German. Does no, it, I'm joking. I'm joking. Does it have a similar root word to morose, like that kind of morse? Yeah, sort of. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Relive? No. Because I know morse in Latin has connotations to death. No. No. See, it's been a few years. Um, I'm trying to think if there's another obvious word in English. No. Has anyone started reading Ulysses? No, um, but I I, own, I also got that one. Okay, it's, and you know it's due at the end of April for this class, right? Yeah, yeah, okay. I evidently do. So you should start. You wrote a paper on it, yeah. but you didn't read it. No, I did read it. Uh, <laughs> <okay>. <laughs> so don't you lie. I like committed to it early on in the semester. And I was like, what course? It was Irish lit. Oh, with with plots. Yeah. Okay. Um, so early on. <laughs> what? Garbage. But Ouch. <laughs> Ouch. Ulysses. Yeah. Oh no. Well, it's, com- it's complicated. It's complicated. It's a yeah. thing. It's definitely as, a thing. As Facebook used to say, it's complicated. Um, <laughs> the. I think <laughs> Yeah, but Facebook made it a meme. Um, <laughs> early on, Stephen Dedalus, who's the Telemachus character, is anyone taking um, Quinny's class? Me. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so you know who Telemachus is. I do know who Telemachus. All right. So the Telemachus character in Ulysses is Stephen Dedalus. And early on, he's thinking in uh, early Middle English, and the phrase that keeps coming to his mind is, again, bite of inwit. And um, he kind of loves that phrase, again, bite of inwit. What that is, is Middle English for remorse of conscience. And it's literally the same thing. Remorse means again, bite, to be bitten again. Ah, like a... um, uh, yeah, or um, what is it, mordedor, like uh, in, in, in Espanol, something like that. Bite. Yeah. It just blew but, my mind, because in Spanish it's remordimiento, and it's literally to bite again, and I, as a native Spanish speaker, I never... Yeah. You yeah, never put that yeah, together with remorse. <laughs> yeah, what is it, mordar, mordero? Mordar is to Mordar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So remorse is to be, is to bite yourself or to be bitten by... Your inwit, which is Middle English, almost literally for conscience. That is what is within your knowledge or within your wit, within your intelligence, is biting you over and over. And the standard distinction is that if you wish that you hadn't done something, if you spend your time going over it in your head, kind of trying trying to fantasize that it didn't happen, trying to make it the case that it didn't happen. If you keep hoping that it's a dream and that you'll wake up, that's remorse. And remorse is not the right reaction to a sin. Repentance is, which is that you have to accept that you've done it, and now you have to think about what you have done as they used to tell you when you were five years old. Go to your room and think about what you have done. Um, you're supposed to think about it. Not hide from it the way you would hide from something that is biting you, but to think about it. And the confusion of remorse with repentance, you could say that that's what's going on in Macbeth. That when he wishes that this hadn't happened. It's also going on in Lady Macbeth when she says, um, not saved, all spent, when our desire is got with our, without content. That is, that um, they did this, and the result was not that they stayed upon a bank and shoal of time and could be happy 
as king and queen of Scotland. It's from then on they are filled with remorse. Nicole. Oh, Bolingbroke, I would, how I wish I had never banished to be, so that would be remorse because he's fantasizing about not having banished him? Yeah. Yeah. If, if um, we've all done that. We've all um, kicked ourselves as though kick, for doing something, as though, as though we could kick ourselves into not having done it. Um, and that completely helpless fantasy of not having done something comes out of the fact that doing it made you feel terrible and you wish you weren't feeling terrible. And so the experience of remorse is a feel is a wish that you didn't feel the way you felt, but it's still all about you. It turns out that you don't feel the way you thought you would feel, and you wish you didn't do it. And the fact that you feel terrible, that's good. That means that, that there's hope for you, but feeling terrible isn't enough. And feeling terrible doesn't get you to uh, some point of catharsis, let's say, some point where you are worthy of the pity of those who, um, who will pity the innocent. What Aristotle says, not that Shakespeare knew this, he knew a tiny, tiny, tiny amount of Aristotle, but Aristotle was not well known in Shakespeare's day. Um, most people couldn't read Greek. Um, but what Aristotle, shocking as that is, um, <laughs> But don't, just don't feel too superior um, because their Latin was really good. Um, what Aristotle um, says about pity and terror in the poetics is, you all know, you all know the famous line in the poetics about what, the definition of tragedy? It's like a one-sentence definition of tragedy. For those of you who need reminding, um, <laughs> or need a better translation than the, the frequent one. Um, Aristotle basically says, tragedy is the imitation of an action which um, makes the audience feel pity or terror. The word for um, terror is phobos, as in phobia. Pity or terror on behalf of the major character together with a purgation of that emotion. The word for purgation, anyone? The Greek word? Catharsis. catharsis. So lots of debate as to how exactly to think of catharsis because it's a medical term and it can mean purgation in the medical sense of purgation, but essentially you're filled with a kind of negative emotion, either pity or terror, and then that emotion is removed from you, is purged from you, and you are left feeling calm, the, the way Milton puts it, is calm of mind, all passion spent. So the idea of a tragedy is that you feel really, really intensely on behalf of a character, um, and the intense feeling that you have on behalf of that character is either pity or terror, and then when the tragedy comes to an end, it's as though we are in a very, very minor way, but as though we are demonized. That is, that there's no, no more to feel, at least about that character. It's as though we're vicariously 
demonized, to use Lionel Abel's term. So later on, Aristotle, in talking more about fear and, and pity, says something fascinating. He says that we feel pity about unmerited misfortune. So if we see a character who is experiencing unmerited misfortune, that is, we see something happening to an innocent, then the audience's attitude towards that character, emotional experience of that character, is one of pity. And then he says, terror when it is the misfortune of someone like ourselves, which is just a great um, hidden assumption that we all merit misfortune. Pity if the misfortune is unmerited, terror if it's just someone like us. Um, so you can see that in a sense that sort of lines up with repentance and remorse. That remorse kind of lines up with terror. It's someone merits their misfortune and the misfortune is biting them over and over again. Pity is unmerited misfortune which means not that, they're ha that they have anything to repent, but it's almost as though we have something to repent. Our interest in, the, in their misfortune is something that maybe we should be rethinking. Their misfortune makes it a good story, but, that, but they don't merit it, and so we should um, try to go from terror to pity, to seeing that they are innocent, to seeing, therefore, that they provide a kind of model for the sort of person that we should be but are not. So the thing about Macbeth is, as I say, Shakespeare um, almost certainly didn't know Aristotle's poetics, but he knew a lot about drama, including Roman drama. And um, what you might think then is that Macbeth is really a play about terror. That is, there's no way in Macbeth that you see unmerited misfortune. In Macbeth, you are seeing the misfortune of someone like ourselves. Uh, that's something that Bloom keeps insisting on. He doesn't make it Aristotelian, but he does say that one of the, one of the horrors, one of the terrors about Macbeth is the extent to which he's like us. Uh, Bloom uses the word identification. We're able to identify with Macbeth partly because he's as greedy and self-dealing as we all are. And, um, that, and therefore, what we're seeing there is very much merited misfortune. Yeah? Would unmerited misfortune be maybe like Othello? Um, yeah. Yeah, uh, I think so. And um, probably King Lear as well. That is, when Lear says, I am more sinned against than sinning, that's not the same thing as unmerited misfortune, but it's the, the amount of his misfortune isn't merited. Othello has his own stupidity partly to blame, but that's, um, but no, he's, he's also a victim. So they're, they're tragedies of victims, and you could say that of the four big ones, um, the victims would be Othello and um, Lear, and then tragedies of um, those who, it, to some extent, are in control 
or have a choice, have a real choice as to what happens to them and choose wrong. And that would be, or choose disastrously, if not wrong, and that would be Hamlet and Macbeth. Um, but of course, they're all different as well. That is, uh, Lear is not as innocent as Othello um, because he has misjudged all those around him when he had a chance not to. Whereas um, Othello's misjudgment of Iago is a misjudgment that he didn't quite have a chance not to make. He was stupid, but not... Um, but partly that's because he trusted the wrong person. Lear didn't trust the wrong people. He just didn't trust the right person. So there's a distinction between them. Yeah. Uh, I was just thinking about that idea that, like, Othello's, uh, like, trusting of Iago, that's not, like, a malicious, like, thing. Like, Lear is, like, cool to people who are, like, trying to exactly. do their best for him. And, like, Othello's kind of doing the opposite. He's kind to people who are trying to, like... Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so you could probably put them on a spectrum of most unmerited to most merited. <coughs> and um, of, the, of the big four, Othello would be the most unmerited, um, at least until the end, and uh, Macbeth would be the most merited misfortune. So, and Othello, you know, uh, um, he's talking to Iago and he's asking for pity. Oh, the pity of it, Iago. Oh, the pity he says. Um, Lear says of himself as well, he asks for pity. He says, I should even die of pity to see another such. That is, if I saw someone who was experiencing what I'm experiencing, I would die of pity for them. Um, yeah? Uh, just on the lines of um, Macbeth being someone we could identify with, I think Malcolm's speech is kind of interesting where he sort of talks about how he, he would not want to be king because if he were king, he'd just kind of be as bad as Macbeth. Yeah. Kind yes. Actualizes what you're saying in that Right. So Malcolm is, is um, at least showing what it would be like to identify with Macbeth. He then denies that he has any of those feelings, um, but, he, but he is showing what it would be like that, you know, Macbeth would just be a piker compared to me. Yeah. So I, I, I think that's right. Um, okay, let's, one of the things that I wanted us to look at last week um, <coughs> is uh, what happens at the end of the banquet scene. And um, I think it's uh, sort of a crucial scene um, because it's where we start seeing uh, Macbeth uh, changing to the diamondized figure that he becomes at the end. Um, so if you go to Act scene three, um, Act three, scene four, and oops, um, let's just start. At um, around line 38, where Macbeth says, um, Here had we now our country's honor roofed, were the graced person of our banquo present, who may I rather challenge for unkindness than pity for mischance. Quickly, what does that mean? 
May I rather challenge for unkindness than pity for mischance? Yeah, Eric. Saying like, I, it's more likely that he's sort of snubbing me by not coming than something just sort of happened and he accidentally made it. Well, he's hoping so. It's like when your parents um, don't know where you were because you turned off your phone, and um, then you get home and they're really glad to see you and they're also really pissed off at you, but they're really glad to be pissed off at you. Um, because that's what they wanted. When they didn't know where you were, what they were really hoping is that they could challenge you for unkindness than pity for mischance. Um, they're afraid that, um, that they're going to feel um, too much love for you because you've been lost, because you've been killed, and they would rather be angry at you than feel tenderly towards you. And that's, that's interesting. Um, that being in that psychological state is interesting, um, where you would prefer to have a negative feeling to a positive feeling, depending on, on what you would call negative or positive. But that's what he, he says. I hope that I'll be able to challenge him for unkindness, saying, Banquo, what are you doing, you jerk? Um, I'm hoping that that's what it'll turn out to be, then that I will have to pity him because some terrible thing happened to him. Um, Ross says, yes, challenge him for unkindness. His absence or lays blame upon his promise. Um, please, your highness, to grace us with your royal company. And then Macbeth looks at the table and sees no place to sit, either because he doesn't recognize Banquo, who might be sitting like this or might be far away. Um, maybe, like Lear, Macbeth's eyes are not of the best. That's what Lear says of himself at the end of the play. Um, but he says, the table's full. Um, Here's a place reserved, sir, says Lennox. Um, again, uh, Lennox. Where? Here, my good lord, was it that moves your highness? So that's an implicit stage direction, right? Everyone gets that? Um, that that's what Shakespeare is doing. What is it that moves your highness means stage direct, implicit stage direction. Macbeth looks moved. Um, how does he look moved? He looks horrified. And then... Which of you have done this? Uh, interesting question. What does he think is going on when he says, which of you have done this? That there's some kind of trick that they're pulling on him. Or at least yeah. that's what I get out of that. Yeah, it has to be some kind of trick, which means he has to think that it's Banquo in disguise or maybe a papier-mâché Banquo. Mm -hmm. um, but Somebody disguising themselves as Banquo? Yeah. Or... If you don't see it that way, what, what does it mean about Macbeth, that he would turn to them and say, which of you have done this? Yeah. Which of you has murdered Banquo and huh. caused his ghost to appear here in front of all of us? He would have to have lots of presence of mind <laughs> to say, oh, there's Banquo's ghost. I better blame someone else. <laughs> um, here, let me kill the two of you because it's clear you're the ones who yeah, killed Yeah, it's like he's so casual that it's like, ah, Banquo's ghost, of course. Therefore, like, it's like, uh, wait a minute, which of you did this? Never mind. Start playing a game of, like, you know, werewolf, that deception game, except instead of, like, who killed the townsfolk, it's who killed Banquo. <laughs> so make it make sense, though. Not, not sense as in what a reasonable person would ask, but psychological sense here. If you're playing Macbeth, what would you do? Yeah. Like, I kind of feel like he's, like, already kind of, like, losing it. Like, he's kind of, like, he, 
I feel like he doesn't know how to understand that because they're all acting like nothing's going on. Uh-huh. Um, but clearly, like, he's so, like, upset and moved by it. Yeah. So, like, it's almost like because he can't, like, internalize it, he's externalizing it, so it's like, what's going on? Like, someone else must be, like, masterminding all of this because, like, this can't be happening. Yes, yeah, yeah, good. Um, I think it's a little bit like, like the downfall scene um, that you all know that always gets, the, you know, the downfall parodies, you yeah. know? Yes, you do. Hitler in the bunker, in, it's all in German. You guys, what did you do with your teenage years? <laughs> not, not, not great stuff. <laughs> yeah, but downfall parodies, everyone knows downfall parodies. You know what I'm talking about, you just don't know that you know. Um, do you know what I'm talking about? I think I do. What is it? I don't want to say because I'm afraid I'm wrong. Okay, it's Hitler and his, it's, it's about a three-minute, five-minute scene of Hitler in his bunker in a German movie called Downfall in which he's learning that um, there's no yes. more defense of Berlin. So yeah, yeah, we know, know we know about this. It's the, the nine, 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 yeah. nine, nine, yeah. nine, that when he yeah. does... When That's right, I'm by fail. Oh. That was an yes, order. That, that, and then he uh, takes off okay, his glasses. Now if, you, now if you don't know this, you're uncultured. But, okay. <laughs> but it was... Uh, but that is... no. I don't think anyone knows the title like of that. Because okay, it is a meme, so yeah. nobody knows where it's from. All right, it's a Downfall parody. It's from a movie called Downfall. Um, it's a great movie, and what happens is whenever anything goes wrong, people will put it up with different subtitles mm -hmm. as though they're translating from the German, and it's stuff like, um, what do you mean Mookie was never supposed to be traded? Um, instead of Berlin was supposed to be defended. Or, or my favorite variants of that are when the answer to one of these problems is the number nine, and yes. they just put the actual, like, the one part of it where he does that. Yeah. We That's... just appreciate that you put meme and cultured in the same sentence. <laughs> well, it's okay. The, the use of the word uncultured was a, was a meme in and of itself. But, it, it, and, and on the internet, when we say that, it means, like, you don't know something that's very widespread, and so and that was that was fairly widespread. Not in the last like three years or whatever, but it it, 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 was, it, it was it was around for many many years. It was. I am I, I you can look it up. Like it is. I'm not if, lying. If to I you. if I can say, dank. Uh. <laughs> not as bad as my father. But not that much better. <laughs> it's a dank meme. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's a thank you meme. Okay, not to digress, because you know that I hate digression. Oh, um, yes. This is what that parody is, is when Hitler finds out that he's lost everything. Um, but what he does when he finds out that he's lost everything is Bruno Gans plays Hitler, and he does a really good, good job there, is on the one hand, he is the lowest and most dejected thing in the world. That is, he's been um, completely destroyed. And on the other hand, he is still used to being the dictator. And so even though he has lost all his power, what he's just found out is that, that he's doomed, that he's finished. Um, even though he's lost everything, he is still using the tone or the attitude of someone who has absolute power. And I think that that's what you're getting in this moment in Macbeth. Which of you have, have done this? Um, what that essentially means is that's paranoid. He sees Banquo's ghost, and his question is a paranoid question where the paranoia is about everyone who's there. It's as though they are in control of 
the punishment of the horror that Macbeth is going through. They have done this to him. And so what's, I think what's amazing about that line is that its content is one in which Macbeth's paranoia is total, and we've seen his paranoia before. Macbeth hath murdered sleep. Methought I heard one saying, sleep no more. But now that paranoia extends to the people that he has complete and arbitrary power over. And they've done this to him. And in a way that is supernatural and that means that he has no possible uh, defense or power of his own. And yet the tone that he takes is the tone of the king, the absolutist tone of the king who is looking at them not with fear but with fury. So that combination of paranoia and fury Thank goodness we don't live in a time when you see that in a chief executive anymore. Um, but a combination of paranoia and fury, that is, Macbeth is really at a tipping point there between absolute fear if paranoia completely wins out and absolute fury if fury wins out. Yeah, Cassie. I actually think thinking along those lines that Nicole's reading of it that he mentioned is sort of not as preposterous as he treated it as a moment ago. I think that obviously he isn't literally looking for somebody else to blame. Like, I don't think that he's making the literal leap from like, oh, I see Banquo's ghost, so someone killed Banquo, so who killed Banquo? But I do think that subconsciously there is an element of that, like, dialogue going on for him because there is an interesting like change from the murder of Duncan to the other murders that Macbeth nice yes for, yes good where he kills Duncan nice. like he knows that he did it he like has blood on his hands like in a very literal way but after that every time he kills like when he kills Banquo and tries to kill Cleance when he kills like the rest of the Macduffs who are not Macduff um, he like sends other people to do it and tries to, in those conversations, convince those other people that they have a reason to do it that isn't just that the king told them that they mm -hmm. had to. And so I think that there is like the idea that Macbeth is looking for somebody else to blame maybe isn't something that Macbeth himself is playing out quite literally. Like I don't know if that's I don't think that's his intention behind the line. But I do think there is like a subconscious like sheen of that conversation throughout like the rest of the play from here on out. That's great. Yeah, that's that's great. Nicole. Yeah. It can also be that rather than maybe a combination of fury and fear, of a fury and fear, that fury is a response to fear. And yeah. So it's like his self yes. defense mechanism. Like first he sees um, Banquo's ghost and he's afraid of it, and then he responds with fury at those who have less power than him. Good. Yes, exactly. Tommy. Well, admittedly, it does. So um, the next the next line that he says, thou canst not say I did it, never shake thy gory locks at me, that, that as well as the notes, if you have the Arden uh, version, Which do, you all do. do say, his next line seems to confirm that he means who has murdered Banquo. Yeah. 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 So, so not your your analysis was not at all wrong. It's just I was making fun of you because I make fun of everybody. <laughs> yeah. Um, so... But I do think that, the, that it partly depends on um, a slippage or an ambiguity that Macbeth, to some extent, 
uh, will will exploit in the word this, which is the, is does this mean uh, killed Banquo? No, it doesn't. Does this not when he says which of you hath done this? It means who brought Banquo here like this. But then when he says thou canst not say I did it, the it is now meaning the murder of Banquo. So I think that that in a nutshell is the is is the move that Macbeth the motion is, is it's not a move that he's making like in a chess game but it's the way Macbeth is going or the way what the play is doing for him which is uh, taking a line that the audience understands to mean um, brought Banquo here and that's Macbeth being paranoid but then two lines later is that can not say I did it and um, what's happened is imperceptibly the antecedent of those pronouns has now become the murder of Banquo. It's not that we're supposed to rethink, it's that the play is doing the rethinking for us. I also think, I'm wondering if Cassie, I'm, I'm only saying this because I know Cassie will object, um, but do you see the slightest pun in the word which? No, I don't. Whoa. <laughs> okay, those are the two extreme um, responses to that suggestion. No and whoa. whoa. Yeah. yeah, one of those things that rhyme like, <coughs> like, like uh, womb and tomb. No. <laughs> no and whoa. Yeah. It's funny that you bring this up now because I do remember in my past when I was younger, my grandparents took me a couple times to see a couple different productions of Macbeth. And when they got to the scene, I remember, now that we're making the joke of who brought Banquo here, I remember the people putting on the production made a, like, life-size doll that looked like the actor oh, cool. who played Banquo. And they just kind of sat him in the sat him in the chair, and they found a way to make it so his head, like, swiveled to look at you. <laughs> oh, wow. And it was the awesome. creepiest thing, but it kind of helped to sell the... That's the great. sort of yeah. anxiety Macbeth would have in this situation. That's great. That's great. Um, How old were you? <laughs> <laughs> I hope like five, but probably older than that. Excellent reverence. I was eight. Going off of the witch pun, because that also made me be why the, the, the people who made the film chose to have the witches serve the food. Uh-huh. Uh, this, yes. Because that made me relate to the witch pun. Okay, good. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, Cassie. Okay, not only do I not think that that's a pun... <laughs> but you don't think so Shakespeare ever puns. I don't even know why we're entering into this conversation. Um, I think that it's Funny. somewhat more powerful if it like explicitly is not a reference to the witches because there is a really interesting tension throughout any scene that the witches aren't in between how much Macbeth like is conscious of the fact that he's been manipulated and whether he blames the witches yes, or not. Yeah, yeah. So I think if you have like if you stage it so that there is like the there are the physical witches in the scene, then maybe that pun, if it exists there, like makes a little more sense. But if the witches are sort of like intentionally not in the scene, I don't think that Macbeth in this moment is making the connection. Like, I think that he, he waffles between being very, like, convinced that the that he's been, like, the victim of these supernatural forces and, like, the other extreme, which is, like, not acknowledging that the witches are anything other than just, like, telling him things he already knows. And I think that he's closer to the, like, telling, they you know, like, it's not the witches, like, exerting an influence over him. It's just, like, 
the way that things were going to go, and this is all like on him, and he's having like a very like human and grounded experience of it. Yeah. So what I would say is, if there's um, a subliminal pun, and part of what I think is always going on in Shakespeare is that Shakespeare is really, really good at, as for example, in the slippage from um, this to um, from this to it, he's really, really good at su- suggesting things in your mind that you're not even aware of as being suggested, and then allowing that suggestion to contribute its its own hue to the general picture. Um, just a just a little possibility that that um, affects the atmosphere a little bit. Um, one of my college roommates was a bass player, and he says, "No one ever hears the bass, but the bass uh, controls all the music. Without the bass, it all sounds different. The way the bass player plays um, affects everything." And I think that Shakespeare does have that little, um, almost imperceptible bass note um, in his plays. And I think that it's not a pun in an overt sense on the word which the way um, untimely ripped or no man of woman born is going to be a pun, uh, kind of conceptual pun on what it means to be born, but that uh, if we hear the word witch, not even thinking of W-I-T-C-H, then it's as though Macbeth's paranoia is everyone around me is like the witches. Not the witches as opposed to other people, but all of you are in the same relation to me at, that the witches are and that I thought was limited to the witches. And yet I can be imperious at this moment by saying, which of you have, have done this? And um, notice, by the way, it's which of you have done this, which means that it's plural, not which of you hath done this, which means only one of you would have done it. But it means which several of you have done this. And what that would mean then is that he's starting to see everyone as being like the witches or the witches as being like everyone. And if he's still imperious with respect to everyone, maybe this is again just stagecraft. It makes just a little bit more plausible the way he is going to start giving orders to the witches later. When earlier on he'd been frightened of them, later on he is taking, he is, he is um, acting as though he has absolute authority over the witches as well. And that's part of his diamondization is he stops being afraid of the witches. He um, starts making demands rather than requests. And that's really a pretty powerful um, transformation within him. Yeah. Um, have, do you know about uh, uh, Carl Jung's archetype, the trickster? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Would you say that the witches are that? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, they're they're not the best tricksters in Shakespeare, but but they're but they're like outside of it, and they're causing this provocation for the purpose of yeah. And that. they and they are tricking, and they declare themselves as tricksters. That yeah. is that um, though his bark cannot be lost, yet it may be tempest tossed. Mm-hmm. That is that they can't, they don't have the power to make things happen, but they do have the power to manipulate, to manipulate others. 
Um, yeah. He also feels at that same time that he's feeling authority over the witches. He also um, starts feeling independent from Lady Macbeth too. Yes. So. Yeah. So then he turns to Banquo and says, "Thou canst not say I did it. Never shake thy gory locks at me." Um, and everyone thinks, boy, he's acting really, really weird. And then um, Lady Macbeth says, um, sit worthy friends, my lord is often thus and hath been from his youth. That's true. We know that that's true. How do we know it's true that Macbeth has these, um, these moments of uh, rapture or of fits? Yeah. He has them even before he's committed any murders. He has like he does this like even before he's killed Bunkin. Mhm. Yeah, and in particular after he, when he when he and Banquo see the witches and then he's soliloquizing to himself or he's having lots of asides off stage and like for the first time ever in Shakespeare someone notices that a character is off having an aside <laughs> um, and um, Banquo says look how he's wrapped. Um, and what happens is that that is part of Macbeth's character is that he gets lost in his own thinking. Um, and what Bloom points out is that um, one of the things that's interesting about him is that Macbeth's thinking is not intellectually powerful. That is, that, that unlike Hamlet, who is always thinking at the highest possible level, no one in Shakespeare is as smart as Hamlet. No one else in Shakespeare is as smart as Hamlet that Hamlet is always thinking on the highest possible level. Macbeth is just as much in his own head as Hamlet is, but not thinking abstractly, but rather thinking phantasmagorically is the way Bloom puts it. And here's an example where the phantasmagoria is actually occurring on stage. And then Lady Macbeth says to him, um, are you a man again? Uh, Macbeth, I and a bold one that dare look on that which might appall the devil. There's that word appall that Cavell likes so much and that Macbeth uses several times. Um, that is a, another moment of Macbeth's becoming diamondized. Yes, I'm a man. Earlier he had said, what about being a man? I dare do all. Anyone? Famous lines? You know these. Becomes a man. What becomes a man? Yeah, I dare do all that doth become a man who dares do more is none. And that is also a famous ambiguity. Do people now remember that, that line? Um, Macbeth says, be a man, I mean, Lady Macbeth says, be a man. And he says, I dare do all that may become a man who dares do more is none. Um, what does that second line mean? Yeah. On the one hand, it could be like, if I do more than what becomes a man, then I am dishonoring myself. But on the other hand, you can look at it from the demonization point of view of like, if I do this murder, then I become inhuman in that. Okay, yeah. Yes. No? Um, yeah, so I dare do all that may become a man is if, a man, if it's a man's work, I can do it. Um, anything that a man can do, I can do then the possibility is who dares do more is none could simply mean there is no one who dares do more than I do. Um, no, no such, per, how many such people exist? None. So there is none who dares do more than I do. 
Um, it's the null set. See, quantitative reasoning. The set of, of those who dare do more than I is the null set. Um, <laughs> there, fix that for them. Um, or it can mean, which isn't a contradiction of the first, but um, the primary meaning can be any, any being that dares do more than I dare to do would not be human would therefore be some evil supernatural figure and not a human being. So I will do anything that a human being is capable of doing, I dare to do. Anyone, any being that dares do more than I do is not a human being. And um, I think, again, that's an equivocation that's important to the play because doing what may become a man, that's Macduff. And the question is, is the person who kills Macduff, I mean, sorry, is the person who's going to kill Macbeth a human being or not? That is the question that Macbeth has misunderstood the answer to. If none of woman born, and remember that, um, uh, if you read the footnote, at least remember this, that um, the idea of, um, calling human beings those who are born of women, that's, a that's from Matthew. That is that um, the description of John the Baptist. Did people read this footnote? Um, so that phrase um, that, that um, human beings described as those who are born of women, of all those born of women, none is greater than John the Baptist. That's what Jesus says. Um, so there, in the Bible, the phrase means all human beings. Um, Jesus is not saying, eh, Julius Caesar might be greater than John the Baptist, because after all, um, what he means there is what Macbeth takes the witches to mean. No natural person, no human being can touch me. And then it turns out, that the equivocation is, no, it's simply no human being who, um, who had a vaginal delivery can touch you. Um, yes, it would have been far less eloquent if they had put it that way. <laughs> yeah. Um, but notice the way the um, spirit puts it uh, in Act 4 is, la is in a couplet, laugh to scorn the power of man for none of woman born can harm thee. And that's a hint that the word born really matters. But when Macbeth paraphrases that couplet, he says, um, no man that's born of woman. And so he misremembers later on in Act 5, he misremembers what he's been told. Um, he then gets it right. So he says it right once and wrong once. But again, the idea is, are there human beings who dare do more? Is that an open question for Macbeth, to which he's answering, no, there aren't? Or is there something that can go farther and still be human than as far as he thought humans could go? I'm, I'm putting this badly, and I know you guys got to run, but just to um, tell you that that clock is fast. Um, the, um, if he says who dares do more is none, he's making a claim. 
And if the claim is no human being dares do more than I do, that's a defeasible claim, as we lawyers say, which is to say, no, it might turn out there is a human being who dares do more than you do, just as there's a human being who's greater than John the Baptist, namely Jesus himself. Um, so there is a human being. So he's saying there's no human being who dares do more than, than I can, but he could be wrong. Um, if he's saying the very fact that someone dares to do something dares to do more proves that they're not human, he's saying something else. With Macduff, he is wrongly thinking that he has um, a way of describing all human beings, and who, dare, who will kill me is none he might say, um, because anyone of woman born won't be able to kill me. And, but he's wrong because that's a defeasible claim. Someone who is a human being can kill him. The point is not that they're not human, it's that they're not of woman born. So I hope that was clear. I'm sorry to have rushed through that. Um, but I think that that's another really wonderful subliminal moment there. Okay, see you guys thir uh, Friday. <laughs>